Today on BASIC, we welcome from Jesus and Marrow, the Kid Marrow. We all connect and we end up at Viceland. And, you know, that's really, that was a huge turning point. When we made the decision to not renew the contract, we kind of just like examined like, you know, the landscape, the market as a whole, and like Showtime was where we ended up. Jesus and I had discussed, you know, pursuing separate interests like for over a year prior to, to the show coming to an end. And, and that conversation solidified for us, you know, in signing overall agreements that recognized, you know, our intent to to operate independent of one another, right? So, you know, as far back of uh, as far back as June of last year, we were both pitching or looking to join like existing projects as individuals. We had a conversation, we had a sit down, and we were talking about it, you know, more than a year ago. So, the intent. The intent, you know, was to go our separate ways in, the, in a way that was supportive of each other. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history at cable TV. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and here to tell you that the brand remains strong. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I'm just hoping that we do an interview today while drinking alcohol. Our guest today, Jen, is best known as the Kid Mero, one half of the duo formerly known as Jesus and Mero, who recently parted ways. Yeah, obviously the fans were really sad to hear that news. You know, the guys had risen to fame with a podcast that led to some opportunities at MTV and ultimately getting their own buzzy Vice TV talk show. And they parlayed that into a more upscale version of the show on the Showtime Premium channel that ran for several seasons before the pair split in July of this year. We'll see if we can get some more insight into all that when we chat. So hang around, and Doug and I will be back after the interview to talk about what we discussed. Well, Kid Mira, we're so excited to have you on the Basic Podcast. Hey. And a little intimidated because you're a very good interviewer. So uh, <laughs> hopefully we won't let you down here. But No, I doubt it. Uh, well, you'll, you'll see. Uh, <laughs> the question we usually ask our guests to start out with is, if you can remember when you got Basic Cable or just remember things you used to watch on basic cable when you were younger. Oh, oh, yeah. I remember that very well because, you know, I grew up, you know, in the Bronx, like meager beginnings, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I didn't have cable up until I was, I want to say, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. It was just like, wow, like, there's more than three channels? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it was just like, it blew my mind. So I immediately dove into, like, watching stuff. Like, I would watch, like... I'm trying to think of, like, the most random thing that I watched on cable. But honestly, like, the random stuff was public access. So, like, I would go on and watch public access on cable and be like, yo, that guy works at Circuit City in Yonkers. Like, I know who that is. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) that was, like, like earth-shattering to me. That, like, I was just like, regular people make TV? Regular people and Robin Bird. And Robin Bird. (laughs) (laughs) She was regular, but then, you know, those deep tool ads would come on. And, uh, you know. (laughs) I don't want to get too much into that. <laughs> but despite loving cable TV and a lot of stuff as a kid, you were not necessarily headed for a career in showbiz, though, right? No. I, I honestly thought that I was just going to be like the funny, as I grew older, the funny uncle. You know what I'm saying? Because I would always make my family members laugh. You know what I mean? And like my friends, we would be hanging out, passing around a bottle of Paul Masson or whatever $3 brandy was available and just like kind of, you know, talking shit and just hanging out. To me, that was like, that was it for me. I just like to make people laugh. So, you know, I never thought of spreading my wings and getting into entertainment. Also, my parents are immigrants. So they were just like, yo, you have to have a real job. Mm -hmm. And being a comedian, it doesn't fall into the category if you're a first-generation kid. 
how did you get to writing music reviews at Complex? I was just blogging. You know what I mean? Because I would get to my job at the school. Like, you know, I had to clock in at 8, but I would get there at 7 and just kind of have an hour to, you know, drink my coffee, my bagel, whatever. And I started writing. I just started writing about, you know, stuff. Because remember Yahoo back then, this is, wow, damn, I'm dating myself. Like Yahoo front page had like news, pop culture, news, whatever. And I would just grab like three or four topics from that and just write about them. And on top of that, I had the Merrill Mailbag where I would just answer people's questions. Like I just set up a dummy email at Yahoo. From there, Reggie Osei, rest in peace, I give him all the credit in the world. He was running the source at the time. Combat Jack, everybody knows him as Combat Jack, but that's my brother, Reggie Osei. May he rest in peace. Super influential, not only in, like, podcasting and, like, the wave of podcasts that he kind of birthed, but he gave me confidence in my voice. And he was just like, listen, man, this is this is not, like, some fly-by-night bullshit. You have a, a very singular voice, and is it okay if we post your blog posts, if they pertain to hip-hop or anything like that, on the Source website? And I was like, fuck yeah, dog. I was just like, yo, you crazy? Like, yo, the source is like the Bible to me growing up. You know what I mean? Like a, a 90s hip hop kid, the source was it. Like you would open it up. I used to go straight to the back to the graffiti pages and the, the verse of the month, you know, the unsigned hype, <laughs> all that stuff. Between him and Victor Lopez, who was at the time at this little boutique place called Synetic Media, those two guys really kind of put the battery in my back and were like, listen, you got a voice. Don't change it. Because it's you. It's not a persona. It's not some, like, thing that you put on. It's naturally you. So just cultivate it, nurture it, do it. So then, like, so I was approached by Vice, the noisy arm of Vice, to do music reviews. And I just started doing it. And, um, you know, invoicing and doing all that stuff. And that's kind of where it started. So then in, in terms of connecting with Jesus, you guys knew of each other kind of online, before yeah. you knew each other personally, right? Yeah. So back in the day on Twitter, I don't know if you remember, I don't know which dating app. There's, there's a dating app that has a similar feature, but I, I don't know which one it is. But it would tell you who's in your area. If they had their GPS mm -hmm. on, it would say, you know, this person is on East Tremont and Clinton. And this person, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was like a GPS kind of situation. So Bronx Twitter, hashtag Bronx Twitter became a thing. <laughs> Being a part of Bronx Twitter, there was a lot of stuff that we would talk about that, you know, kind of jive with each other. So it was just like, you know, we would talk about like hyper local shit and, you know, just kind of bounce jokes off each other. And then we first met in person at Complex when we started doing the Complex thing over there, the show over there. Mm -hmm. And then how quickly did the Bodega Boys podcast come to be and had that all happen? That was so... So the complex thing came to an end, you know, natural progression. Then an outfit I think you're familiar with, Doug, MTV, music television. Yeah, sure heard of that, I yeah. Believe you, I believe yeah. you're familiar. Doug never talks about his days at MTV. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're going to get into it. <laughs> so MTV came knocking. And prior to that, I was already writing. You know what I mean? Because since I had this, like, itch to write and create, I never stopped. You know, between my friends and Victor, you know, Reggie. Were you approached by MTV News because of your music writing? Is that how it started? No, it was an executive from MTV2 that reached out via email. And they probably knew you from the complex stuff, right? It probably, yeah. I would say that that's what they, they picked up from. And then the writing was just like, you know, they, they knew like, oh, this guy can write too. You know, shout out to <laughs> shout out to Victor for securing that deal because, like I said, I'm first generation. So you never quit a job until you have another job. And what were you hired to do? 
to come on and be talent, right? Like, just kind of like jack of all trades. So when we landed at MTV, there wasn't really a landing place per se, right? So there wasn't like a vehicle ready to jump into. There wasn't like, here's a show for you. Just go and do it. Um, It was more so like, you know, your talent, we're going to put you on guide code. We're going to put you on this. We're going to put you on that. And then I think the biggest look was Charlemagne. Shout out to Charlemagne because he had a show called Uncommon Sense on MTV2. And he put us on there as like a guest segment. You know what I mean? Like a permanent guest segment. It was a segment called Classic or Trash, where we would rate things as classic or trash. <laughs> Very kind of like wild binary. Like, is this a classic thing or is this garbage, you know? And then from there, that was the only thing that we were kind of doing. So there was a lot of downtime. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. But you guys were doing like, uh, you did like Wild and Out, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and, uh, yeah. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. But when I met you, yeah. I remember first of all, I walked over, you had like this little bullpen. The swag chamber, I used to call it. Yeah, with a great view. And I remember ending up there because I would always get off the elevator. I had taken an office on the floor you were on, but for some reason I'd go, instead of going right, I'd go left, thinking my office was in the corner that you were in. Right. And I just came over there one day, and it was unclear to me what you guys were doing. It was unclear to me what we were doing. So, and bullpen is the perfect description of the thing because it was literally like, we need a funny guy. Come out of the bullpen, you know? So, Oh, that kind of bullpen. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like a in a baseball sense. Literal comedy relief. Middle comedy relief. So. Yeah, middle comedy relief, yeah. <laughs> or closing, you know, however you want to call yeah. it. Like I said, that, that left a lot of downtime. So in that downtime, we were just kind of like, let's do an indie thing. And that indie thing became the Bodega Boys podcast. Yeah, I just wanted to back up a second because even though you and Jesus knew each other a little bit, obviously you were then put in a situation where you were working together. Can you talk about kind of the genesis and the evolution of that? Like, did you guys just, I mean, as an outside observer, it seems like your sensibilities just clicked naturally, but was that a process or? No, I think it was just a a function of where we come from. Mm -hmm. 
we have similar backgrounds. Like I always say, like we're similar, we're not congruent. There's certain things that I was more into, there's certain things that he was more into, but at the end of the day, there was enough overlap in that Venn diagram that we vibed. From there, it was just kind of like natural. And I'm just kind of like an affable guy, you know what I'm saying? Like you could pair me up with somebody and like I'll make it work. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, no, it was kind of it was very easy to just kind of fall into the back and forth, the banter or whatever, because not being classically trained comedians like the school of uh comedy that we went to was new york city public school and (laughs) you got to be real quick to defend yourself from like any sneaker slander or fashion slander or acne slander or anything like that you know Mm -hmm. that common thread was what helped it feel so organic i mean my impression was always you guys would talk to each other that way even if no one was recording you is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, depending on what the topic was, yeah, definitely. It was just kind of just two dudes from the Bronx kicking it. You know, it was the Bodega Boys. It's like the guys that, you know, are chilling in front right. of the Bodega, yeah. sharing a Newport, talking about, you know, the day's events. Right. Right. And everything was fair game. You would talk sports, everything. politics, everything. music. The zeitgeist. The zeitgeist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then when you guys went to Vice and had your own show that was really developed by you, for you, around you, as opposed to some of the things you were doing on MTV2. What was that like? Oh, man, because I remember like it was yesterday, because it was really like a turning point. Nick, Victor, myself, Jesus, we all connect, and we end up at Viceland, and that was a huge turning point, I think, for us, because that's where the show, as a show, like as a linear cable program, picked up a lot of steam and heat and like critical acclaim and all that other stuff. Certainly, Doug never did this to anyone, but sometimes higher-ups and and executives can be, you know, they'll take an original voice and maybe try to give too many notes, or or did you you encounter anything like that when you were there? Never, never. It's wild because I want to say 300-something episodes of the Viceland show, and not a single network note. I think there was one network note where they were like, listen, you get four fucks. (laughs) 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 It's basic cable, so you get four of those. And that was it. That's not bad. (laughs) Okay. So it was just kind of like pick and choose when you want to use them because you got four. The other ones we got to bleep. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You were at Vice in like the sort of golden heyday of Vice. It it had a reputation as being kind of a cutting edge, crazy place. And well, certainly cutting edge. But what was it like behind the scenes? Did it run like a normal business or was it a little little to the left? Or it was a little to the left, and that was a good thing because it was non-traditional. I'm going to end up saying that word so much they're going to put a word count at the bottom. But the fact that our content was non-traditional and their approach was non-traditional work perfectly because it was just kind of like, yo, listen, we know what we got you for, so just go do it. And we're going to be hands off. Mm-hmm. And that was phenomenal because you really learn the ins and outs of how to make a TV show. Right. And we did it, you know, 300 episodes, no writers, just, you know, segment producers who were kind of tapped in, were younger and knew what we wanted to talk about based on our social media feeds, what people were talking about and what people wanted to hear. So it was similar to the podcast in that way that it was a little more loose, but there was certainly a structure because when you make a TV show, there, there has to be some type of structure. You can't just go in there and be like, yo, roll right. and, and go. Right. But that, that was part of the charm, even though it was a TV show and you you know it has to be structured to a certain degree to get on the air, it right. really felt super organic and, oh, yeah. and, and very much akin to the podcast and even the attitude of who you guys were on social media. As an example, I was re-watching some segments before we did this podcast, like when uh, 
you guys were commenting on Kanye on TMZ talking about how slavery was uh, was voluntary. How much of that was like scripted and how much of it was just, okay, we know we're going to talk about this. Let's just riff. It was literally all riffing. So like the intros to the topics were sometimes scripted. So it would be like, you know, on Wednesday, Kanye West said X, Y, Z. And then after that, it was straight off the cuff. Wow, that's impressive. And how quickly did you get the sense it was taken off in a really positive way? The buzz around it, the interview requests, the PR requests, the photo shoots, all that stuff that started to come, you know, fast and furious, where at MTV, it was just, it wasn't like that at MTV. So, like, that's what made my antennas perk up. And I was just like, hey, yo, hold on. Like, the New York Times wants to talk to us now. (laughs) Shout out to John Carmanica, who profiled me in 2013 when I had a blog and nothing else. So these outlets that were not hollering at us before were now like, yo, let's sit down and talk to these guys. They're doing something different. Late night is being revolutionized. You know, when 100 people tell you, yo, you're good at basketball, you probably think like, hey, I'm pretty I'm pretty good at basketball. <laughs> I mean, did you feel like you were revolutionizing late night? No, I was just really living in the moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, my feet are firmly planted on the ground. Like, I'm a father of four. At the time, I was a father of two, going on three. And I was just looking at it like, this is my job. I come in, I have fun, but... I wasn't thinking of like, yo, I'm changing the culture of late night or anything like grandiose like that. Hindsight is 2020. So I'm like, now I realize like, oh damn, like you you really made an impact. But mm-hmm. I was just happy to be at a place where I knew it just felt comfortable. And when you feel mm-hmm. comfortable, you perform at a higher level. And that's how it looked. You know, you guys just looked like you're supposed to be there every night. Yeah. Yeah, it was the most natural thing in the world. I think the audience really felt that and yeah. related to that. Well, that and also, I mean, Not that everyone here doesn't know this, but the late night landscape is still very much dominated by white men hosting shows. And so to ever have someone who's a woman or a black person or a Latino person or whatever it might be. Or not uh, a white white guy. Just not a white guy. That's a revolution all by itself, sadly enough. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, we talked about it in early interviews and stuff like that. Just the simple fact that we are who we are and we're sitting in front of this camera doing a late night show is revolutionary, you know, in and of itself. But... I didn't, like, dig into that. I was just more so like, let me do a show that's good. Mm -hmm. And it was. That's the paramount thing is like, yo, let's make good shit. And everything else will just kind of naturally fall into place. Tell us about the decision to sort of wind down the Vice thing and and move on to Showtime. Like I was saying before, man, like, I love the time of Vice and working, like, kind of hand in hand with everybody at Vice. You know, they were incredibly talented. They were diverse. They really gave a shit about inclusion, too, which was really important to me. And, um, you know, when we made the decision to not renew the contract, we kind of just examined, like, the landscape, the market as a whole, and, like, Showtime was where we ended up. And so what was different about working at Showtime versus Vice? I mean, did you still feel like, you know, you were getting to put out a show that was representative of what your voice was? Well, so, yeah, so Vice was very non-traditional, and Mm -hmm. the fit worked because we were non-traditional. Right. Like I said, they were pretty much hands-off. They let us work to our strengths. Like I said, again, we never received a network note. <laughs> again, to, not to repeat myself, Vice is really where kind of like the launch pad was like three, two, one, lift off. You know what I mean? That's where it kind of mm-hmm. really took off. So, but, you know, an unfortunate side effect of scaling is in general, Doug, and you, I know you can speak to this. Like in general, there's like a way of doing things, right? And people adhere to that because it feels safe. But, you know, we're in a new age. The talent pool is widening and and it's becoming much more diverse. And that makes certain people who adhere to the standard, quote unquote, nervous. And they clutch onto their positions, you know what I mean? And 
even to the detriment of the end product. So if you look at the body of work, like we never use writers and that's not taking anything away from the writer's room, but it just kind of didn't jive with the natural rhythm that we developed over the course of, you know, 500 plus shows and podcasts that we made over the years. So I personally never kind of felt comfortable in people kind of discounting or downplaying that strategy because mm -hmm. it, it was proven in producing for us. That's why the Vice Show was so popular and picked up steam because we played to our strengths and we, we produced in a way that was not, you know, the standard way. One of the things I really appreciated about the two of you is just the way you do interviews. I feel like the art of the interview has gotten a little bit lost in late night of late because they're often so like pre-programmed and, oh, and yeah. so forth. And your interviews never felt that way to me. And I, I'm curious about a specific one, which is interviewing David Letterman. What was that like? I mean, he basically came on and said, I wish I could do your show or I yeah. wish I had done my show like yours. Yeah. And that was like, again, that's like Michael Jordan telling you you're good at basketball. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that was a huge, I, w I won't get into it, but it almost didn't happen because, you know, <laughs> of uh, things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for being so specific. <laughs> sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. Is, is, is Letterman your most memorable interview? Because you had some pretty great A-listers by the time you got Showtime. I wouldn't say most memorable, but I would say that it gave me like a boost of confidence. Like everything that everybody's been telling you up until this point, like Reggie, rest in peace, Victor, Nick, all these people that were like, listen, this is your voice. Don't dilute it. David Letterman saying that. He's the ultimate cosign. Literally the ultimate cosign. And that was very important. But I got to say, like the one that stood out to me was it's a toss up between Obama and Denzel. Not because like I like either one better, but because the Obama interview happened at the height of COVID. And he was like, yo, nah, we can't do this via Zoom. <laughs> like, <laughs> I need to see you in person and talk to you. So we did it. And we also got to use a Howard University's library. Shout out to Howard and shine a light on HBCUs, for, you know, real quick, like, boom, shout That's out. That's cool. Yep. And talk to Obama. And it was really like a, like a wow moment. Because, yeah. like I said, like, my parents are immigrants. So to them, like, the TV stuff, the comedy stuff wasn't really, like, a real thing. But then when they saw, oh, shit, like, he's interviewing Obama. <laughs> my mom called me. She was like, I saw your interview with Barack Obama. Oh, my God. I'm so proud of you. I just want to tell you that, you know, I always knew that you have a talent. And I just wanted you to develop it. You know, that's why I always wanted you to continue your education and always be prepared for the things that are coming. And I was just like, okay, well. Like, you, <laughs> you're like... That's why she was having you look for jobs, like, on the yeah, New York yeah. City subway or whatnot. <laughs> but, yeah, shout out to my mom. But she did, ultimately, and my dad, you know, and my, my entire family ultimately support me. And, like I said, like, that's why, you know, my feet are firmly planted on the ground. I surround myself with good people. And I just kind of don't get sucked into that, like, that industry vortex, you know? Um, mm -hmm. To me, that's, like, hyper-important if you want to like have longevity in entertainment is to kind of see things as they are and not as people tell you they are. Mm -hmm. So we are recording this in uh, late July of 2022. We all got the news last week and Jen and I certainly count ourselves amongst your fans about the show uh, not continuing along with your partnership. I know this is not something you really want to spend a lot of time on and talk about, but what can you tell us and your fans about your decision to part ways uh, with Jesus and the show? Yeah. I mean, 
Jesus and I had discussed pursuing separate interests for over a year prior to to the show coming to an end. And that conversation solidified for us in signing overall agreements that recognized our intent to operate independent of one another, right? So uh, as far back as June of last year, we were both pitching or looking to join existing projects as individuals. It wasn't like I'm breaking up with my girlfriend on the phone, yo, you know what I mean? Like it was a strategy and it was one that we all agreed on. I mean, obviously when the news broke about the, the show ending, people were very, very upset. And there was just a flood of, of commentary on Twitter and online and a lot of appreciation for what you guys had done. I, I, how much of that did you absorb and were you in any way surprised by that level of adoration for you? No, I mean, listen, when we would tour and do live shows, there were people that got tattoos. There were people that, you know, would come to the, like, the VIP meet and greet and say things that would have me in tears in the green room, you know? <laughs> like, I was really sad and depressed. You took me out of this really dark place. You know, so many stories like that. My wife and I were, like, on the outs, but we would sit down and, like, smoke a bowl and watch a show, and that brought <laughs> us together. Like, literally, that's verbatim. Like, that, somebody really said that. And that brought us back together and, like, saved our marriage or, like, you know, saved my relationship or like I said, took me out of a dark place or was my respite from like like my shitty job that I hated or whatever. So when that flood of like, we really appreciate the last 10 years, I wasn't surprised by it, but it just kind of like solidified to me that to quote Spike Jones, everything is finite. I was like, yo, listen, man, I'm determined to not force anything. If we have to force a partnership that's coming to a natural end, it's not going to be the same. Your fans would be able to tell. They can feel that when they know performers as well as they know you guys. Oh, yeah, 100%. So, you know, knowing that, we had a conversation. We had to sit down and we were talking about it, you know, more than a year ago. So the intent was to go our separate ways in a way that was supportive of each other. I'm sure it was still a hard decision to make, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, like, things come to a kind of natural they wind up and then they wind down, you know? And when they're winding down, you got to recognize that it's winding down and not super max Patrick Ewing when he has two toddler mattresses around his knees, you know, and, and you know his career is coming to a close. <laughs> Even though I love Pat, but you know, at the end of his career, it was just like, okay, right, you know, it's time, right. it's, it's time. So what's next for you? Oh man, like, I wish I could say, but you know, like- <laughs> Is it like, things? Is it, 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 it's, de it's definitely things. Um, and I've always been, like, I started writing. So digging a lot more into that, features, series, books, you name it. Like, I want to get into all of it. So that's what's on the horizon. After your show announced that it was ending, then a few days later, Samantha Bee's show got canceled. And as we were talking about before, you know, there it's very rare to have women, people of color, hosting these kinds of shows. Yeah. So... Do you see the late night talk show landscape changing at any point in the future? I mean, I mean, I hope so. I feel people can look at what we did, what Sam did, and kind of just say, look at that and be like, listen, this is viable. If you let these people play to their strengths, don't water it down. Just go in there, let them do what they do, and then worry about the rest later. It'll work. You know, it worked mm -hmm. on Viceland. People couldn't even find Viceland. I had people calling me being like, yo, what channel is this on? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, with channel 161, if you're in the Bronx. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I used to be right. like, oh, it's like 161, like Yankee Stadium. Remember that? Like, I had that, like, it was like a catchphrase that I just had to press a button on my head to tell people. Because people would stop me, like, you know, at Bay Plaza, the mall in the Bronx, and all over the place and be like, yo, I saw your sh a clip of your show on YouTube. Where do I watch it? Driving people there was, the proof is in the pudding right there. So if you have something that's buried in basic cable and... It's still getting looks, still getting rave reviews from critics, 
still kind of shifting the paradigm of what late night is. And it used to be history too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that speaks a lot to the impact that you have as a creator. It speaks a lot to the fact that this is a viable product. You can get yep. a black man, a black woman, an Asian man, an Asian woman, you name it, like gay man, or gay, anything. Like I, mm-hmm. people who are not, like you said, just an, another white guy to host and lead these conversations, it'll work. It'll be viable and it'll bring you eyeballs, which is at the end of the day, all of the execs in the ivory tower want is eyeballs and numbers. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I'm, I'm gonna jump in here as the old white guy. It seems like a perfect time when we're talking about uh, diversity <laughs> for, for, me, for me to jump in. Um, just to say that uh, you were talking about basic cable there for a second. We always finish up by asking our guests, do you have an all time favorite basic cable show? Oh man, when I first got cable, it was Ren and Stimpy. Mm. Oh, good choice. Because I was I was young, but I wasn't that young. And I was like, this is a cartoon, but it's kind of edgy. It was revolutionary. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? So I was just like, it's not like Bugs Bunny cartoon. Like, it's not like Tom I, and Jerry. I can remember when it came on was the same uh, time that MTV News started doing Choose or Lose, and we had Clinton and all these guys on. And I was like, something is wrong if MTV is like interviewing Bill Clinton and Nickelodeon is showing Ren and Snippy. Like somehow the world seemed upside down to me, but it worked for everybody. Yeah. The thing about Ren and Stimpy is it was so brief that it was like, when you try to make references to it now, especially to younger people, they have absolutely no idea what you're talking no about. Idea. No like idea. Like if I start singing the It's Log song, blank right. faces from a lot of my Powdered toast, John, man. What are you talking about? John, John Chris Felucci was a, uh, he was a early victim of cancellation. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah. wow! Yeah, that's that's uh yeah. He uh, he was only on the show for like a season or two. It did not last long for him. Wow. He, was, he was brilliant but complicated. I, I gotta say, I also got a big up Comic View because Comic View, I watched religiously. Once I found out that it existed, I tuned in like religiously. Mm. So Ren and Stimpy and Comic View. We haven't heard those two before, so thank you very much. <laughs> and dude, thanks for being here, Jen and I. Really appreciate uh, you coming on. We know. Thank uh, you. This is look. A lot of guys in in your position would have passed this interview up at this point, and we appreciate wow, you coming to talk to us today. Come on, man. This is Dougie from Patterson that I'm talking to. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm right over. Here. I'm right over here, baby. I'm right. Over, I'm right across the 33rd Street Bridge. How at your boy? <laughs> Franklin Lakes, baby. We're looking forward to what comes next for you. Yeah, for sure. Oh, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks so much. Here. So kind of an advantageous moment to talk to to Kid Miro in the sense that this is a major moment for him with, with Jesus and Miro leaving Showtime. And it's a major moment, I think, in, in late night TV with, you know, Samantha B's show getting canceled very soon after we heard that Jesus and Mero was going to be going away. It's a loss, I think, especially given that, as we talked about in our conversation, like so many of our late night talk show hosts are white men and we're just not hearing from different voices like Jesus and Mero or Samantha B as much as we would like to be hearing from them. Yeah, and I, look, I think there's a lot of things at work, right? You know, one of them is the world of linear ad-supported television is right being upended, which is where programming that was targeted at a certain day part was important. And I don't know, 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, you couldn't access a late night show until 1130 at night. And now it sort of feels like you know, with social media and the way these shows are kind of chopped up and, and sent out into the world, it's late night all the time. So I think it's a combination of the platform changing with the advent of streaming and, and video on demand, wherever you want it, whenever you want it. It feels like a lot of belt tightening going on out there. Felt like the Sam B decision 
Warner's is starting to move a lot of their resources towards HBO Max. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. It sort of felt like belt tightening to me. Although I don't know if you remember, I, we had a conversation with Sam B after we finished the interview. And we sort of were asking her about what was happening. And she seemed a little nervous at the time. And I remember saying to her, ah, they're going to keep you on like it's a marquee show. And of course, whoops. you know, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the time, it seemed like they were they were scaling back more on like scripted series. But I it, I think you're right. I think at least at Warner, they're they're scaling back probably on a lot of original programming and rethinking the way they do it. And with with, with Jesus and Mero, my sense is that might have been more their decision than Showtime, yeah. or maybe or maybe mutual. I don't know. For sure. I mean, it seemed like they had made that decision, so it's not like Showtime was getting rid of them, but. Whether it's the creative people's decision or a business decision, when you lose those rare voices, it's really felt in a landscape where there just aren't enough already. And I do think, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I just wonder how much longer late night as we know it will continue to exist, you know, on the broadcast networks. Jimmy Kimmel hasn't said he's retiring, but when we talked to him, you could kind of sense that maybe he was like starting to think down the line what he what he might do. Um yeah, but you know. you know what I do know. What I do know from still knowing some folks behind the scenes is mm-hmm. that at the networks, at the broadcast networks, they're still interested in keeping certainly those eleven thirty slots alive. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe the twelve thirty slots could be over time. Those may be a thing of the past. Although I, I know for a fact that NBC still really wants Seth around for as long yeah. as they can have at, at twelve thirty. Sure. So, but it's so yeah, it's changing, and I think just think that the shame is you know Sam B's a great important voice, and same with Jesus and Mero. I mean, so I, I suspect maybe we'll see them someplace else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I imagine we will, as we talked about. I just think late night doesn't matter unless it's cracking through on the internet, and I just think the things that break through on the internet are not necessarily in line with the choices that are being made by the broadcast sort of executives at this point, if that makes sense. I, I, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. And streaming somehow still has yet to crack sort of like the talk show thing, right, in a big way? Uh, no, not yet. I mean, Chelsea Handler had a show on Netflix, as we talked about. Uh, Amber Ruffin has a show. But yeah, to the point that Mira was making, it's like it's harder to crack through right. because do you subscribe to that network? Do you know which network that's on? It's just like... It requires a lot of work on the viewer's part to find where these shows are to begin with. So you mentioned Chelsea Handler. Well, just should mention to our viewers, uh, we have her coming up. She'll probably be a season two guest on uh, Basic. And, you know, just finally, Jen, I just, you know, so we, we actually interviewed Chelsea already. And then shortly thereafter, as we all read, she broke up with Joe Coy. Sam B., her show got canceled the day after we put her interview up. And then literally moments after we booked Kid Mero, Jesus and Mero broke up, which poses the question to me, is this podcast bad luck? I, I don't know if this is, podcast is cursed, but I feel like if it is, maybe we shouldn't publicize that because <laughs> we need to book future guests. It's like a reverse curse. You got to put it out there. Uh-huh. And then you can kind of kill it. Okay. People if just go, that's so. funny. It's not cursed. All right. Enough of that. <laughs> we're certainly, we're, we're not really cursed, but uh, it uh, has been an interesting time for a basic and late night television. Jen and I, thank you for joining us, and we hope you will be back again next time on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. 
If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.